his story? I think so. Uh, it's uh, easier to ignore, I think, than to try to analyse. And, you know, we, we talked about inflation a lot in probably April, May, and, you know, when bond yields were at 1.7 and thinking that it was going to be a problem. And, uh, you know, things certainly didn't uh, play out in terms of expectations on inflation. But um, I'd suggest that some of the cost push inflation is stabilising, so some of the supply side of uh, prices has stabilised somewhat, so that's given some confidence. But the demand pool, I think, is still there, and uh, it, it, it's sticky now. I think it, the question is, if it's transitory, that's fine, but uh, with the prices where they are in terms of increase over 5%, does that stick? That's when I think the market will start to assess whether that has you know, become more systemic inflation rather than just transitory. Okay, Toby, thank you very much. That's Toby Lawson, the CEO of Society General India over in Mumbai, India. You're listening to Money Talk on RTHK Radio 3. Let's take a final look at the markets for this week. The uh, Well, in Australia, the SX200 is up half a percent. Uh, in Japan, markets are flat. Uh, in South Korea, the Cosby is down about a third of a percent. Uh, futures markets here in Hong Kong slipping and suggesting that the Hang Seng is going to open about half a percent lower in the commodities markets. Brent crude oil about a quarter of a percent weaker at $71.17 a barrel and gold is trading pretty flat at $1,753 an ounce. Thank you very much for listening this week. Do have a great weekend. Please join me again on Monday morning at 8 o'clock. Stay tuned for Back Chat with Hugh Chiverton and Danny Gittings. Uh, the weather forecast for today, sunny periods and a few showers, maximum temperature around 32 degrees. The outlook, occasional showers over the weekend, sunny periods and a few showers early next week. It's 29 degrees right now, 79% relative humidity. 8.32, here's Ben Che with the half-hour news. The Taliban have captured a string of crucial cities in Afghanistan on the most dramatic day yet of their advance across the country. They have driven out government forces in the third biggest city, Herat, and are poised to gain control of Kandahar, the second largest. Andrew Watkins has worked for the United Nations Assistance Mission in Afghanistan. The government has lost any real advantages in being able to hold the Taliban back. As they lose control of major cities and provincial capitals, this paves the way and gives the Taliban a freer and clearer path to Kabul, to move towards Kabul in large numbers than it has ever had before. And that certainly means whatever happens, Kabul will be at greater risk. The United States says it's sending nearly 3,000 troops to the Afghan capital, Kabul, to help evacuate some civilian staff from the American embassy. A State Department spokesman, Ned Price, told reporters the U.S. embassy in Kabul would remain open at its current location. We've been evaluating the security situation every day to determine how best to keep those serving at our embassy safe. Accordingly, we are further reducing our civilian footprint in Kabul in light of the evolving security situation. We, ex- we expect to draw down to a core diplomatic presence in Afghanistan in the coming weeks. In order to facilitate this reduction, the Department of Defense will temporarily deploy additional personnel to Hamid Karzai International Airport. An international team of researchers say they have the first clear picture of how our body's metabolism changes through life. The scientists studied more than 6,000 people, as the BBC's James Gallagher explains. Their study looked at people between 8 days and 95 years old to track our metabolism. That's all the chemistry needed to keep our body running throughout our life. 
They found it spikes shortly after birth, and the fastest we burn through calories relative to our body size is at the age of one. It then slows until 20, dispelling the belief that there's a metabolic surge in the teenage years. Then, in a massive surprise to researchers, it's rock steady for the next 40 years. Only after 60 does a long-term decline set in. The researchers say understanding our metabolism could eventually change the way we use medicines or lead to ways of slowing the old-age decline. You're listening to the news on RTHK. Good morning and welcome to Bag Chat. I'm Hugh Tewerton and your co-host today, Danny Gittings. Danny, good to see you back. <laughs> it's good to be back. So we're talking today about uh, COVID-19 and also about the election committee. Chinese authorities have approved trials for the mixed use of a Sinovac jab and a DNA vaccine developed by American biotech company Inovio, which is set to begin in the autumn. The mainland recorded 143 new cases on Monday, the highest number since January, prompting more mass testing. And they reported on Thursday 81 new cases uh, compared to 111 the day earlier. Meanwhile, in Hong Kong, a nurse has incorrectly injected a man with two doses. The man was subsequently sent to hospital for observation. And the city has reported mostly imported cases with the food expo now underway. What do we know about the situation on the mainland? Will China have to open up eventually? and learn to live with COVID. Uh, from 9.15, we're going to be discussing the election committee. Elections uh, will likely not be needed for the majority of seats on the election committee, with the number of names put forward, roughly matching the number of places available as the nomination period comes to an end. What's going on there? We'll be talking to Professor John Burns. If you want to comment on any of these things, ask questions, uh, please, we want to hear from you. You can leave a message on our Facebook page, and that's Backchat on RTHK Radio 3. You can email us, backchat at rthk.hk, or you can call us, and our number is two. 233 Joining us from the first uh, part of the uh, programme, uh, we have with us now uh, Yang Lin, who's an associate professor in the School of Nursing at the Polytechnic University, and uh, Professor Malik Pires, who's the chair of virology at the Hong Kong University School of Public Health. Once again, our email, backchat at rthk.hk. Uh, Yang Lin, uh, good, good morning. You're just back from China. Yeah. Well, tell us about where, where, where were you and tell us what's the situation. I mean, we're hearing a lot of reports of restrictions all over China now, even in places where no, no, almost no COVID cases have been detected. What, what's the situation like on the mainland now? Well, uh, actually, I visit uh, Guangdong province and uh, Wuhan and uh, um, a, a couple of cities as well. So uh, I... I actually, I was there in uh, early July uh, when people were very relaxed and enjoyed the, their normal life. But at the end of uh, July, when there's surge of cases, uh, everyone getting so nervous, and uh, uh, several places actually had uh, partial lockdown and uh, mass screening as well. So I can I can feel the change, and uh, you know, uh, but a lot of prevention measures and control policies has changed a lot since uh, last year. I would say it's more targeted and uh, quicker than uh, last year, and but uh, somehow it's more even more uh, stringent uh, than what what I experienced in in uh, in the you know, last year. Yeah, because last year you were in Wuhan when in the earlier stages of the virus, weren't you? And then you're you're back in Wuhan again this year. What's the difference you notice in Wuhan between this year and last year? Well, uh, 
Well, I see. I, I, I saw people really happy and because uh, uh, they kind of get their normal life back. But after I left, and uh, actually, uh, you know, there, there's some cases and uh, uh, some districts actually were locked down again. So, um, but but this time it, it's not a complete uh, lockdown, which means people can travel inside the district, but although they were not allowed to uh, traveling across the street, that uh, district. But somehow, I, I think it's much better than last time. Yeah, you say it's more targeted. In, targeted in what way? Sorry? Uh, I mean that they can't go shopping, they can go outside, uh, enjoy walking in the, you know, uh, outdoors, and they can, you know, um, they can get everything they need. So this is um, much better than last time. But also, uh, this time we had a couple of a couple of rounds of mass screening again, so uh, which helps uh, you know uh, the cases can be identified quickly, uh, which then um, you know it's much better than last time I would say. Yeah, how did that go? Because we, we, you know, we tried that in, in Hong Kong. We still do the kind of locking down a block and doing testing, <laughs> but it doesn't seem to work in Hong Kong. We never seem to find anyone that way. Uh, right, yeah. I, I think the mass screening requires a lot of manpower, and uh, actually the healthcare workers sacrifice a lot uh, in mainland. So they work uh, 24 hours, you know, uh, that, that's really, really crazy in the, in the summertime. So, um, but for me, I, I, I don't think mass screening is truly necessary in, in such few cases uh, occurred. So um, I, I think that requires a lot of evidence or scientific evidence to support uh, to what kind of situation we do need mass screening. Also joining us is uh, Professor Malik Paris. Professor Malik Paris is the Chair of Virology at Hong Kong U School of Public Health. Uh, good morning. Welcome to Back Chat. Good morning. Uh, what, what do you make of the situation in China now? Well, I mean, I think it was uh, predictable. I mean, sooner or later, um, all of these uh, regions and countries, whether it be Australia, New Zealand, Hong Kong, China, which have uh, uh, maintained, tried to maintain a, a zero infection policy, will have introductions from outside. So I think um, it was inevitable. I mean, they they certainly are trying to bring it uh, back under complete control. But I think in the long term, uh, clearly, uh, I mean, trying to attain zero infection was uh, commendable in the early stages of this pandemic until vaccines became available and uh, we had enough time to roll out these vaccines. But I think the long game has to be that to get the vaccination rates uh, uh, high in the local population and then gradually uh, re remove some of the restrictions, including uh, some of the border restrictions because we cannot uh, continue forever in this way. I mean, some measures such as masking can be continued for much longer. Some, uh, you think masking is going to become a semi-permanent feature of life? I think um, it, uh, it all depends on the social acceptability. Uh, I mean, uh, in places like Hong Kong, it is not, uh, it is not so unacceptable. Uh, so... I think surely uh, in, sorry to interrupt things, in Hong Kong it's the other way around it's 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 un socially unacceptable if you don't wear a mask isn't it well 
exactly. So what I'm saying is that it's one of the least intrusive restrictions that we have, but it is one of the layers of defense. So all these defenses are multi-layered, layered one on top of the other. So I think, you know, we need at, at some point, first and foremost, we have to get Hong Kong. We really have to get our vaccine coverage up. It is, it is very disappointing that particularly the people who are most in need of the vaccine, that is the over 70 age group, is the one that uh, has the least take-up. So that is the really worrying situation in Hong Kong. But is it ever realistic to expect herd immunity through vaccination? I mean, I've seen um, estimates in the US now with the Delta variant. They're saying you'd need to have something like a 90% vaccination rate to, to reach herd immunity. And in Hong Kong, where we have one vaccine which appears to have a much lower um, effectiveness rate, um, surely it, it would be impossible ever to get to herd immunity. Yeah, so it, it is not necessarily a question of herd immunity. I mean, that is desirable, but that, that's not the primary objective. The primary objective is saving lives if and when there is another outbreak. And we know for sure that these vaccines do uh, protect you from severe disease and death. So I think once that has been achieved, and particularly for the most vulnerable uh, segments of the population, then the virus itself will be much less um, uh, damaging and dangerous. Uh, Yang Lin, what, what do you think about that? Um, uh, in, in China, the approach seems to be more or less the same, that the, you're, they're seeking uh, zero cases. Uh, but I know there is also discussion of uh, having to uh, learn to live with uh, COVID one way or another uh, in, in the end. How did that discussion go? What do you make of that? Do you think China will have to, in the end, accept, uh, accept the, the presence of, uh, of uh, COVID as an endemic disease? I think that many of us probably already know there's currently there's a, a debate about what the possibility of living uh, with COVID in mainland China right now. So I, I definitely echo uh, what um, uh, Malik has raised. It's important to have a high uh, vaccine uh, coverage. Uh, you know, that's, the, that's what we need to, to, to get the normal life back. And uh, I, I can feel like, you know, in, in China, you know, um, such a, a stringent, uh, you know, uh, control policy uh, uh, actually may increase the doubt uh, about the vaccine efficacy in the, in the general public. So this is the kind of sad effect. But um, eventually, I, I think what we can rely on now is just vaccination. So, so you, are you saying that there are doubts among the ordinary public in China about the effectiveness of vaccines? I mean, uh, people are saying, why, why should I get vaccinated if I, if the, you know, uh, if this, the vaccine gun is unlikely to, to you know, uh, eliminate the, uh, the virus from the human, right? So I think basically that's the kind of comes from, that, that kind of doubt come from the zero-case policy as well. So pe- ordinary people in, on, in mainland China, they are aware that, because uh, <clears throat> it's not reported in the state media, but they are aware that the, the effectiveness of the uh, vaccines used in China, like Sinovac and Sinopharm, is, is, is lower. Pe- people do realise that, right? Well, uh, I think that kind of 
data showing, um, we all understand that uh, the the vac vaccines is not gonna stop the virus transmission, and none of the vaccine can uh, nowadays. So, uh, but in terms of uh, reducing the uh, the severity and uh, the mortality risk, I think um, all of vaccines are are capable of doing this. Uh, you know, there's also the suggestion that uh, China will develop its own uh, mRNA uh, vaccine, perhaps used in combination with the with the conventional vaccines, which are which have been developed uh, at the moment. Uh, do you think that would change attitudes? Do you think that's going to happen? Uh, first of all, uh, Professor Yang. Uh, well, uh, yeah, I think that. Uh, there are a lot of uh, clinical trials, trials are going on nowadays at, about the mm. uh, combination of different type of uh, um, uh, vaccines, and also there uh, some are ongoing in mainland as well. Uh, but uh, I believe the mRNA vaccine will become available soon in, in mainland as well. So they will going to have another trial. Uh, Malik Paris, do you think that the, uh, the in the end uh, everyone will be taking one way or another an mRNA vaccine? Well, I mean, I think there are a number of vaccine uh, approaches. I mean, mm -hmm. as you know, AstraZeneca is not an mRNA vaccine. Um, uh, so there are a number of different strategies. I think the important thing is for everyone to take a vaccine. Um, uh, as, as we said, you know, these vaccines do protect from severe disease and death. And as was mentioned, I think, um, well, back at the end of last year, Professor Gabriel Young and I wrote an article to The Lancet where we pointed out that, that at that time, that optimism that um, vaccines were going to generate herd immunity and protect transmission, etc., that there was, you know, that was rather a challenging um, uh, task for a vaccine because keep in mind that the vaccine is injected into your arm, and that generates good antibodies in the blood. And that will protect your lungs uh, from the virus to a large extent. But the initial introduction of the virus is to your nose and nasopathics. That is um, not so well protected from blood antibodies. You need what is called local immunity, mucosal immunity, to do that. So vaccine injected in the arm is always going to have challenges in protecting infection. But as we can see, it is doing well in protecting against severe disease. Okay. So I think, um, yeah, so, so we have to be realistic about what vaccines can achieve. This doesn't mean vaccines are, you know, are, are bad. They are doing a great job. And this is the, you know, the, the, the main strategy we have to get over this particular pandemic. Professor, <clears throat> Professor Paris, we've had a question on our Facebook page, our Facebook page, Backchat on RTHK Radio Free. If you've got a comment or question for our guests, you're welcome to leave it there. And Nigel asks, what I would like to know is there are reports of people arriving at the airport who've been double jabbed in Hong Kong, have positive antibody tests from Hong Kong, tested before they fly, but still have been identified as COVID cases when they arrive. Are the authorities detecting dead viruses? Are the hospitals agreeing with the test reports from the airport? If not, what's going on? Professor Paris, can you shed any light on that? Oh, well, uh, this, that exactly follows on from what I said a moment ago. So, I mean, the vaccines pro produce very high levels of antibody in the blood. And this is important as well, by the way, another arm of immunity called the T-cell response. 
So these are what protects you from severe disease. But the initial uh, um, introduction of the virus is to the mucosa of your nasopharynx. There, uh, the blood antibodies have much less effect in blocking the virus. So this observation that was pointed out is, is perfectly compatible with that. It doesn't mean that the vaccines are bad. It doesn't mean that the antibody test is wrong uh, or that, um, um, you know, the PCR test is wrong. I mean, all of these, are, I think, are sensible in that each of them reduce the risk of introduction, even if somebody is positive, the risk of transmission, etc. So it is, uh, it is not incompatible with what we know. Uh, and talking of risks, um, what's your opinion? I mean, for those who have been vaccinated, we read with alarm stories speculating about whether you might get a variant which can really break through the vaccine and um, actually um, cause serious illness among uh, vaccinated people. We say the, the current variants, right, they can infect vaccinated people but are very unlikely to uh, cause uh, serious illness. What's your own opinion about the possibility of a COVID variant emerging that uh, could cause serious illness among uh, vaccinated people? Uh, well, I mean, the current variants, including Delta, uh, by and large, uh, the vaccines that we have do protect uh, from severe disease and death. I mean, you can look at the UK data, yeah. you know, with the, with the huge increase in cases, the, the death numbers have, have really stayed uh, very low. Now, of course, as regards to the future, um, you know, the, uh, you, you cannot completely rule out uh, a possibility of a virus that uh, even is better able to evade uh, vaccine immunity than the ones that have turned up so far. But I think the best protection against that eventuality is to damp down the uh, chance of the virus to spread. I mean, as uh, Tony Fauci said, I think uh, a few days ago, you know, viruses can't mutate if they don't replicate. So, so by globally, you know, uh, controlling the spread of the virus is the best way we can avoid the chance of one of these uh, even more dangerous viruses emerging. Uh, uh, Malik Paris, it's good to talk to you. I mean, uh, um, we spoke to you, we used to speak to you, of course, a lot around the time of uh, SARS. Um, and um, <clears throat> I'm just wondering about sort of comparisons with what happened with SARS and what hap what's happening uh, with uh, COVID. Um, SARS basically kind of disappeared, didn't it? Uh, do we know why it disappeared? And could something similar happen to COVID? Well, we, we know, uh, well, actually it didn't disappear, but we know why it was able to be contained. And, and the reason why SARS could be contained, SARS-1 could be contained, and SARS-2 uh, cannot, is uh, the behavior, uh, a small difference in the behavior of the virus. So in, in SARS-1, people who got infected were not transmitting in the first few days after onset of symptoms. So it was possible once uh, people knew of the disease, once we had diagnostic tests, etc., to uh, identify, get them out of the community, uh, into hospitals, and break the chain of transmission in the community. With SARS-2, um, and indeed, uh, we were some of the earliest to report back in January, February, that SARS-2 was behaving very differently, that it was likely to be transmitting uh, right from the word go, from the onset of symptoms, and now we know even for a day or two before the onset of symptoms. So that makes it um, almost impossible to completely prevent transmission 
by using the same strategies that we use for SARS-1. And of course, we, we continue to see more transmissible variants, don't we? Uh, that I think Delta is four or five times more transmissible than the original version of, um, of COVID. Um, and there's no reason to consider that we've reached a peak in terms of transmissibility for COVID, right? Um, it's quite possible other variants in future will be even more transmissible. Yeah, so I mean, you know, the more opportunity you give the virus to, to continue to try out various permutations and combinations, uh, of course, the main driver, if you think about it from the virus's point of view, uh, it doesn't care whether it kills people or not. What it is trying to do in its mindless way is to propagate, replicate, and spread. So the main driver for that is transmission. So that is why the primary um, selection pressure is uh, for more transmissible viruses. Now, of course, once uh, more and more of the population is immunized, then the virus has another hurdle, which is uh, immunity. So then there will be more pressure placed on the virus to try to escape this immunity. And, and this is why I think, you know, the sooner at a global level we can um, uh, vaccinate at a global scale, the better chance we have of um, avoiding uh, some even worse um, possibilities. Professor Yang, do you, do you agree that's the, that's the end uh, really, the only way out is global vaccination. Well, I totally agree with that because um, uh, I, I think as long as the virus keep, keep uh, circulating and it become more and more adapted to human cells, and that will be uh, more chance to creating, uh, you know, the, the variants as well. So I think the priority now in uh, in uh, all the countries is to get the vaccine to get people vaccinated and tell them uh, it's uh, important to, it's a key step to uh, resume the normal life. What about the situation? What about opening up to other countries? Because you could still have this situation where you have a country, say like China or, you know, in the past... Uh, New Zealand or Australia or somewhere that that has very very low incidence, and then as soon as they open up to to the rest of the world, uh, everyone arrives and and brings the disease in. Um, how is that going to work? You know, uh, uh, if uh, can global trade, global travel, really be what it was? Well, uh, I I can see uh, you know the governments I try to have arrangement like. Uh, travel bubbles and uh, vaccine passport as well. So I, I, I think that requires a lot of effort uh, across the countries and uh, also um, it, it, it's quite early stage to, to decide what kind of threshold uh, of vaccination coverage is safe for traveling. So um, I, I, I think that definitely some countries have to try out uh, but we'll see, um, you know, more evidence. But but this open up, uh, I mean, the the border control, relaxation of border control, requires step by step. Uh, I mean, uh, careful uh, evaluation of the risk and the benefits as well. Well, we keep seeing reports about China building these huge quarantine centres. I think there's one now outside Guangzhou. It's going to be the size of 50 football pitches or something. And that's not a sign of moving towards opening up. It's a sign of sort of continuing to keep lockdown and um, um, having purpose-built quarantine facilities, isn't, isn't it, Professor Yang? Yeah. Uh, for this time, I, I can see people... Uh, I, uh, 
you know, China actually quite quick in terms of uh, contact tracing. And uh, so uh, besides the, the primary con close contact, they even uh, put the secondary close contact into quarantine. So uh, that's a very effective uh, policy as well. I mean, the kind of uh, stop the virus transmission, especially uh, in those uh, pre-symptomatic ones and uh, asymptomatic cases as well. Right. Uh, I think that there's an urgent need uh, for China to uh, open the bottle up border because uh, the coming uh, Olympic uh, next year. So I think that uh, hopefully uh, we'll see some progress uh, later this year as well. Yeah. Uh, okay. Uh, we have got some questions on on the China virus. Maybe we'll deal with those after the news at nine. We're going to we're going to break in, in in a moment. Uh, Paul uh, in an email says your guest has revealed that vaccines will not stop the virus, and further stated they are given to reduce fatalities. Therefore, since there has been, as far as I'm aware, no cases of children dying solely of the virus, this means that injecting minors with this experimental, non-FDA-approved potion is child abuse and should be stopped immediately. That is uh, from... Paul and Jim says, I have been quarantined twice. During my quarantine periods, people shoved things into my room. I believe contamination of my room was possible via these uh, uh, occasions. We'll continue the discussion after the news uh, at nine. We're also going to be joined by the chairman of the Exhibition and Convention uh, Industry Association, talk a little bit more about the Food Expo. And we're also going to be talking about the Election Committee with uh, Professor John Burns as well. Of course, we want to hear from you. Backchat at rthk.hk is the email address. Uh, problems on on the uh, on Taipo Road towards uh, Kowloon near Wheelchair Estate, one lane closed to traffic and congestion in that area. As a result, there's a thunderstorm warning, sunny periods and a few showers, 29 Celsius, the latest readings, and the relative humidity is now at 73%. <laughs> You're listening to the news on RTHK. Welcome back. Back chat on a Friday morning with Danny Gittings and me, Hugh Tewitton. We're talking about aspects of uh, COVID-19. Later, we're going to be talking about the election uh, committee uh, with uh, nominations uh, put in for the uh, places available uh, for the election committee who will, uh, who will uh, appoint... Is it appoint or elect uh, legislators uh, and as well as the uh, chief executive? We'll be talking to Professor John Burns uh, about that. We want to hear from you, uh, as ever. Uh, we were talking to Malik Paris in the first half of the programme. Uh, we're all still joined now by uh, Yang Lin, who's Associate Professor in the School of Nursing at the Polytechnic University. We're also joined now by Stuart Bailey, who's Chairman of the Hong Kong Exhibition and Convention Industry Association. Once again, bankchat at rthk.hk uh, is our email uh, Address just got some some emails on on other uh, issues. Uh, just uh, put them in now, perhaps. Uh, Andrew K says uh, in reference to our earlier discussion about the teachers union, the professional teachers union, the PTU, America is experiencing the same rubbish from their teachers. Unless the PTU can show a good reason for their presence, they should be closed down. I expect the American teachers union will be scrapped quite soon. That's from Andrew Kay. 
<clears throat> Excuse me. John Kowloon says, I referred to your discussion yesterday morning uh, on Cathay Pacific. Uh, Hugh and the guest, Professor Fu, broached the subject of Cathay's chances of surviving the current COVID-induced collapse in revenues with the conclusion that A, Cathay's current financial position provides it with some breathing room, at least for now, and B, in a worst-case scenario, the government would step in to save the airline. However, I was surprised there was no mention of perhaps the most obvious endgame scenario, that Cathay would eventually end up being taken over by one of the Chinese state-owned airlines, be it China Southern, China Eastern, or Air China. And let's not forget that Air China already owns 29.99% of Cathay. This would be a win-win situation for all shareholders. China would gain control of one of the world's top airline brands and its valuable portfolio of international landing rights, while Spire Pacific and its long-suffering minority shareholders could finally exit a business which has produced subpar financial returns for many years. <coughs> many years. That's uh, John and Kowloon. And finally, uh, Bowen writes on the impact of Hong Kong's anti-sanctions law on its position as international financial centre. Uh, Bowen says public figures who have spoken on Hong Kong's adoption of anti-sanctions law via Annex 3 seem to have ignored two important <coughs> considerations uh, through which this can weaken Hong Kong's position as an international financial centre. First, China's imposition of countermeasures on foreign companies for their implementing Western countries' sanctions may be an effective deterrence given the size of China's market and the potential loss of profits. Not in the same league, Hong Kong's imposing the same countermeasures against foreign financial institutions could persuade some of them to move to Singapore or Tokyo. Relocation may, could become even more urgent if more Western countries seriously consider adopting Magnitsky-style uh, sanctions. Edward Yao's comments that international investors have not been deterred so far sounds reckless, as no one knows exactly what will constitute the last straw, especially when the above is compounded by other factors, uh, like the next. Second, the Chinese law's Article 7, which will apply in Hong Kong, makes final the state council department's decisions on the parties to be listed and punished for implementing foreign discriminatory practices. Our courts cannot review these decisions. But as argued by Suya Subedi, individuals targeted by Western countries can, provided they satisfy jurisdictional conditions, apply for judicial review of the relevant measures in the national courts of those targeting companies, something Felix Chung failed to consider in the comparison he made yesterday with the US-EU scenario. If this inequality multiplies as China's con contest with the West begets more Annex 3 laws, this will further undermine Hong Kong's claim to have sound rule of law in the post-NSL era. Miscalculation in this area can backfire seriously against China's efforts to win its arguments with the West internationally. That's from Bowen. Thank you very much indeed for that. Still with us as we continue discussion on COVID-related issues, uh, Yang Ling from uh, Polytechnic University, and we're now also joined by Stuart Bailey, the chair of the Hong Kong Exhibition and Convention Industry Association. Uh, Stuart Bailey, good morning. Welcome to Back Chat. Um, we're seeing, uh, we are seeing a revival of some um, expos in Hong Kong. The, the, the book fair went very well, but now we have the, um, the, the food expo basically without food or at least without food tastings which has sort of been an integral part of in previous years of 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 of, of going to it uh, is this the way forward that we have to accept that um when uh, expos go ahead they're gonna have, they're gonna be subject to all kinds of restrictions that didn't apply in the past good morning yeah thanks for having me on i mean the first thing i'd say is i was at the convention center yesterday afternoon um and, and was really encouraged to see a, a great atmosphere 
Um, the, 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 the people were coming in. They're uh, running in, weren't they, at one stage? They were, well, they were running in for the, for the cheap abalone deals, weren't they? Um, yeah, look, it was great to see that with the protocols in place, uh, the fair, which was cancelled last year, was running very smoothly. Uh, and in fact, speaking to both visitors and exhibitors, everybody seemed very happy with, uh, with the processes and, and, and pretty accepting of the fact that, you know, mask off activities such as tasting. Um, shouldn't be allowed uh, in the current situation, and, and, and they were kind of quite happy with it. Um, I mean, it, in terms of the kind of the, 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 as you said, bouncing back of exhibitions, um, I think we need to be a little bit careful because the high-profile events that you're referring to, like Food Expo and like the Book Fair, are actually a very small part of the exhibition industry as a whole. Um, the larger part is international trade exhibitions, most of which, are, you know, haven't happened, well, none of which have happened since February 2020, uh, and many of which um, that were scheduled to still be happening this, uh, this autumn um, are being cancelled at a massive rate. And, and they generate an enormous economic impact far beyond um, what these consumer fairs, ha you know, have any effect. I mean, you can imagine Mrs. Chan, you know, buying her $1 abalone sort of yesterday afternoon um, compared with... Um, a, a, sort of a, a beauty and spa um, owner of a chain in, in mainland China coming to uh, Cosmoprof, which is one of Hong Kong's biggest shows. It takes over both venues in November, which is, uh, has recently been cancelled. I mean, you know, it's the, 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 the big uh, investment in, in terms of exhibitions in Hong Kong are international trade shows. And until we have an understanding of how borders can open and how people who've been vaccinated can come to Hong Kong, without having to do 14 or 21 days worth of quarantine, um, I'm afraid that the industry, the outlook for the industry, looks pretty bleak. Well, the government has just extended uh, quarantine restrictions until the end of March. I mean, I know technically they say that uh, they, they could still be lifted earlier, but um, in reality, I mean, that looks like sort of the, the minimum period. Um, so it doesn't seem like that you're going to have um, uh, expos attracting visitors from outside Hong Kong anytime soon. Well, it's, it's difficult because we, we are sort of getting mixed messages. Uh, I mean, as of the 18th of August, uh, the serology tests uh, will be set up and they'll be happening at the Hong Kong International Airport. Um, and they're saying, OK, well, look, if, you, if you've had both of your vaccinations, if you have your serology test um, and, and if you, you know, sort of go through all of the protocols, then it can be reduced down to seven days. But then, you know, as you said, sort of a few days later, we've had this blanket ban until the end of March next year. So it's, it's difficult to know what to think. And, 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 and that's, I suppose, the frustrating thing. And, and I met with Secretary Edward Yao on Monday um, and, and put forward, you know, the argument that actually what we want is, is we're not asking for borders to be open tomorrow. We're not reckless. You know, we, we need opening up to be done in a safe manner. But we need a roadmap, you know, the same as Singapore has, the same as the UK has. We need to understand what are the things that need to happen in what order in order for international travel to resume, not just for the, the, the big trade shows that I mentioned, but, you know, for the general public at large, you have the same question. And um, what did he say? Uh, he gave a very diplomatic answer, as you probably <laughs> would expect, um, because there are things which are within his sphere of control, um, which he, he, he can have an effect on. Um, but then, you know, he's part of a government and, and a government that reports to the central authority in Beijing. Um, and, and within that whole chain of command, um, it's difficult to know what the priorities are and, and, and who has um, the ultimate say. I mean, obviously, in terms of the travel bubbles, that certainly is something that he's, he's been sort of working towards. And, and, and look, we've had some bad luck, you know, with the, 
the bubble with Singapore sort of, you know, almost happening, but they're not quite happening. But, you know, again, what is, what is the long-term plan? How many people in Hong Kong need to be vaccinated? What do you need to do in order to come here with, you know, vastly reduced um, quarantine time? Because until we really understand how that plan works, it's difficult to, it's difficult to plan. You know, if, if we knew that between now and a year there were going to be no events happening at all, then, you know, perhaps businesses, I mean, it would be very difficult, but perhaps businesses could plan for that. At the moment, it's difficult to plan for, for an unknown future. Yeah, talking of planning, uh, am I correct in thinking, because uh, there was some discussion of this, I think, with relation to the, the book expo, and I don't know if it applies to the food expo, that, the, that um, uh, if the, under, under the new rules, uh, you had to be able to confirm that uh, 70, if 70% of the, of the people attending uh, uh, one of these um, uh, events uh, had been vaccinated, um, then you could have a higher capacity. But if you couldn't prove that, then it was only 50% or something. Uh, and, of course, for public events, as it stands, it's very hard to prove. It's impossible, basically, to, to prove uh, or find out whether 70% of the people who are going to attend have been uh, vaccinated. Is that the situation, and how is that affecting the Food Expo? Well, look, I mean, I, OK, so, so um, the, the real challenge for, for organisers is not the 70% of, of the visitors coming through the door. The difficulty is the first part of the legislation, which calls for 100% of the exhibitors to be vaccinated. Uh -huh. So on a, on a big show like the one that you've got at the moment, uh, Food Expo, I think there are 900 booths. So there would be thousands of exhibitors in those booths. Now, with our current, you know, first jab vaccination rate at 53%, it's impossible to have, you know, 100% of those thousand exhibitors, um, you know, be, being fully vaccinated. So it, it falls down, really, at the first hurdle. The, the, but the real question I would put is, is, is why now? I mean, consumer events have been happening with the all-secure protocols in place. There have been no infections. So the reason for this legislation is not to keep people safe. The reason, really, for this legislation is to limit access to the unvaccinated in an attempt to drive up the rate. Now, I'm, I'm happy with the, the goal. You know, we want to see the, the rate of vaccinated people driven up. But I'm not sure whether this tactic is the right way. Surely it would be better for the government to have to, to produce this plan and paint a picture of this is what the future holds. You know, you want to go on international travel. You know, you want to stop wearing masks outdoors. You want to do this. Here's the, these are the milestones. These are the things we have to hit. A, you know, a reasonable, sensible plan so we can safely move towards, uh, you know, normality. Right. I mean, I, I think your previous caller talked about, you know, the, the, the zero COVID tactic is, is not going to work. COVID's going to be with us like the common cold probably for the rest of our lives. So how, how do we get to a point at which we manage that? Okay. Professor Yang, you're still there? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Some questions for you as well from uh, from listeners and from comment and some uh, comments uh, as well. Uh, first of all, John says, your correspondent Paul trots out the tired anti-vaccination lines that the vaccine is quote-unquote experimental and not approved by the FDA. This, of course, ignores the fact of the extensive testing and data published in order to achieve the FDA's emergency youth authorization. And it'll be interesting to see what happens in about two weeks when the FDA does issue its permanent authorization for the vaccines. Will the talking points for the anti-vaxxers change? Will they suddenly believe the vaccine is fine when it has full FDA authorization? Uh, I doubt it. They will keep their tin hats on and just change the talking points to some new anti-science conspiracy theory. 
That uh, is uh, from John. Uh, Jim says, uh, in the SAR, quarantine internment camps are used as punishment. They're poorly managed and people have suffered food poisoning while in prison in such a, an environment. And Alonzo says, a question for your guest. As long as China resists adopting the most effective foreign-made vaccines, such as Moderna, BioNTech, JJ, etc., isn't there a risk that Chinese and non-Chinese tra- travellers will be barred from arriving in foreign countries, even if they are fully vaccinated with Chinese vaccines? such as Sinovac, Sinopharm, uh, etc. That's from uh, Alonso. Is there any sign of that, Professor Yang, that you know of, that people in other countries won't accept uh, uh, you know, vaccination with Sinovac or, or Sinopharm as effective vaccination when it comes to travel? Well, uh, for me, actually, I got the uh, Sinovac vaccination myself. So um, I, I think all those, you know, uh, all vaccines actually got approved uh, after very, uh, you know, uh, a series of uh, clinical trials and requires a lot of uh, data as well. So, um, uh, for general public, uh, some people may worry about the, you know, side effects, and some people are more more concerned about the efficacy. So, um, I think I think that's really a personal choice and uh, depending on your uh, on your own situation as well. So uh, for the, uh, it's hard to know, uh, you know, uh, which one, which vaccine is better in terms of a uh, whole population level. But uh, we do see some data from Israel that, uh, uh, it, you know, the mRNA vaccine actually quite effective in terms of, uh, 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 you know, uh, reducing uh, the virus. Uh, severity cases, uh, severe cases and transmission in the population level. But um, uh, well, I will I will say other vaccines not uh, good as good as MA and, and RNA one. But um, uh, it it truly uh, requires a lot of uh, evidence to 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 support uh, you know uh, the you know. Licensing of the vaccine. Okay, one more one more comment from Horatio on Facebook. He says concerning a comment from your professor guest about things improving due to the due to the Beijing Olympics. What makes her think there won't be a boycott with the way things are going? That's from Horatio. Well, that's the discussion for another day, I think. <laughs> Horatio. In the meantime, thank you very much indeed, uh, Professor Yang Lin, associate professor in the School of Nursing at the Polytechnic University, and Stuart Bailey, chairman of the Hong Kong Exhibition and Convention Industry Association. Thank you uh, very much uh, indeed. Finally, today, as mentioned, we want to talk about the uh, election committee. Elections won't be needed for many of the seats, uh, with a number of names put forward, only slightly exceeding the number of places available as the nomination period ended uh, yesterday. Of the uh, 1,500 seats uh, on the body, 982 uh, will be returned uh, through elections. Uh, And after nominations closed, the government said they'd received uh, 1,056 nomination forms, with 13 of the 36 subsectors receiving more applications than seats uh, available. for comment, we're joined now by uh, John Burns, Emeritus and Honorary Professor in the Department of Politics and Public Administration at the University of Hong Kong. Professor Burns, good morning to you, and thanks for, for joining us again. What, what do you make of these uh, numbers, first of all? Well, I think we have to remember why the Chinese Communist Party introduced the changes to our election system in the first place, and it's precisely to produce expected results. 
So this sort of a system does not value competition. So we see the party coordinating the nominations to a large extent. There are um, a few subsectors, such especially labor, medicine, and social welfare, where there will be corporate voting, and this will also be coordinated by the party to ensure that we get no surprises. And we have to remember why the party is doing this. They want executive-led government. They want to align Lechko and the chief executive. And this looks just as though this is what they're doing. I, there isn't much information on many of the people um, listed. For, we know political affiliation for a few, mostly pro-establishment, no surprise. Not mostly tycoons although there's a few children there, but then they have many different ways to protect themselves and pursue their uh, agenda. And it's mostly male. I mean, most uh, women do not do particularly well in most of these subsectors. Okay, I mean, the, the original idea of having an election committee was to control the outcome, and so um, is in a sense this radical revamp that uh, uh, sort of a, 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 suggesting that they, they slightly misdesigned it from their purpose in, in, in the first place. I mean, after all, if you were going to have a popular election, you'd have introduced universal suffrage from the start. I mean, the election committee was, was meant to um, make, make for more managed outcomes, so why did it have to be overhauled like this? They're, because they're, they need to ensure that there are no surprises. And that's precisely... So this is the first stage of it, isn't it? This is the election committee. And so we have an expanded election committee, We and there are no... I believe there will be no surprises in the election committee. It now has much more power to uh, appoint LegCo members and to screen... Uh, possible LegCo candidates, and the role for citizens is vastly reduced. So I see this as, you know, part of that process. I do think it was, from, from the party's perspective, I think there was, it was necessary to do something like this. Is this overkill? Um, well, we could discuss that, but we haven't seen the results yet. We have to look at what LegCo looks like. Actually, when this new LegCo is produced, this puts all the onus of policy failure directly on the Communist Party. Do they know this? I mean, this is housing policy, land policy, all these things. They are the ones responsible for sorting this out now. Well, they would say, I mean, we've heard references to sort of patriotic rubbish, haven't we? They, they would say it's still the responsibility of their, their, their local allies in Hong Kong, and if uh, these problems are not sorted out, that they're the ones who should take the blame rather than the leaders in Beijing. I'm talking about the local Communist Party. I mean, they are the ones who are coordinating this. I'm talking about Lo Hui Ning, and I'm talking about the liaison office. And, of course, they are the, they are the agents for their principles in Beijing, it's true, but the, part, the party's hand is all over this. But you're not suggesting, are you, that everybody joining the election committee is a communist? I mean... Certainly not. <laughs> you, you, don't have to, you don't have to be a communist party member. All you have to do 
is accept the coordination of the party. And we can see that, to a large extent, that's what's happened. And we are still seeing some moderate Democrats standing. Uh, Teacher Yoon was mentioned. Um, there will be a f- um, there will be a few others. So it's perhaps there will be still some some diversity. Yes, I think there is. There will be some diversity. You can see that, for example, in the social welfare nominees. So you even have uh, the head of uh, the third sector or a middle of the road kind of uh, nominee in social welfare, I believe. So there is some diversity. That's true, um, and we and this is all in aid of choosing Lechko and of course the CE. So we don't have any much of an idea what the new look Lechko will look like. There could be some diversity there, I agree. Why bother? Why go through all this very elaborate uh, process? Why not just take over? I have asked this question on your program many times, and I've never heard an answer from the, from the party. I think it's up to them to answer this question. If you look through the documents, they basically say, well, we are respecting where Hong Kong has been and where it's coming to. Hong Kong has had experience of elections since 1985 of some kind, since 1991. That's 30 years of citizens expecting to have some influence through elections. So if we just shut them down completely, there will be even more alienation and shunning of the government than there is likely to be in uh, December for the Let's Go election. Professor Burns, I wonder with your extensive experience of the political system on the mainland, are, are there any parallels with some of the elections at local levels you see on the mainland? You, I mean, you do sometimes have on the mainland elections where more than one loyal candidate is, or where they allow more candidates than there are vacancies, as long as they've all been screened and they're reliable, and they do see a purpose yeah. for competitive, uh, at least an element of competition there, don't they? Yes, yes, I think we can see the party's mainland experience, the hand of that here, too. And occasionally, very occasionally, the party decries what it calls unexpected results. And so, but these are very, very rare. And when the local elections are held, the party tells us that, you know, in 99.9% of cases, we had uh, no surprises and we had expected results. That's what the party wants here. It, and this is to produce executive-led government, to align Lechko and the chief executive so that whatever the political executive wants in Hong Kong, it will be passed and approved speedily. What, what about the uh, chief executive? Because in the past we had, um, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but I, it, it looked like uh, uh, genuine competition between chief executive uh, candidates. You had at least two people who were pre-approved uh, by Beijing and they were allowed to, to, to fight it out. Can you see that happening? No, I mean, if you think that happened last time, can you imagine that happening again? I think the room for this will be much less. I agree with you. I mean, I think that we have seen some kind of um, thing like this. If you look at C.Y. Leung and uh, Henry Tang, for example, there. But this is within a very narrow um, uh, space. Um, could we? I think it's 
less likely that we will see this. Um, could there be two candidates for the election committee to choose? Uh, that's possible that there would be, but the party will tell them which one to choose. So that is kind of um, well, they're, they're, window dressing. There are multiple candidates circulating, I mean, circling. Who? It's clear, it's, it's very clear that... Uh, See, uh, Kerry Lam wants to stand again, and that people like C.Y. Long are clearly interested in standing. And um, even the financial secretary, Paul Chan, has been making an incredible PR show recently. So it's clear that there are quite, quite a large number of people who are interested in standing. Are, are you suggesting in the end that the party will sort of uh, dissuade or uh, some of them from standing? Um, the party will coordinate this, and the party will probably, um, you know produce two people and will tell the election committee which one to choose that this is it's always this way that even even in you know every election is in the past the party has had its way now did were the results always what it liked in the sense did carrie lamb perform as the party expected certainly not uh, and, and there could still be those kind of surprises too hmm. What about the, the, the tycoons? Uh, you know, attention drawn to the fact, that, as you mentioned, that they're not standing, although some of, the, some of their children are the next, gen, next generation. But if, also, you know, the thought occurs to me that if you were looking for someone to blame uh, in future, tycoons are a very uh, obvious and popular, uh, judging by sort of internet uh, comments and so on, uh, person to blame, aren't they? Targets. You can always blame the, um, the, uh, the rich, top-hatted, uh, tycoons, and um, that would, <laughs> yeah. you know, yes, who's yes, going to stick up for them? I do that sometimes myself. But the, the point is that our election, our, our political system has empowered business, including the tycoons. This was a political decision. So if you want to blame, the blame should be on the government and the political authorities. This is why I'm saying if from this time on, if these uh, policy issues such as land and housing are not solved, that it will be on the Communist Party itself for not having done this. The tycoons are just uh, enabled, you know. They wouldn't, they wouldn't be able to do this if the political system wasn't designed to, to allow them to do this, speaking of the previous system. Their, their uh, voice will be somewhat... Um, diluted in the new system but you know they have many ways of uh, protecting their interests we've seen this time and again lobbying uh, withholding cooperation granting cooperation there's all kinds of things they can do and they're very powerful mm. all right uh, alan in an email says uh, back chat hong kong finally has one man one vote that one man is <laughs> Xi Jinping. That's from uh, Alan. Uh, John Burns, thank you very much indeed for joining us. Emeritus and Honorary Professor in the Department of Politics and Public Administration at the University of Hong Kong. Thank you very much indeed. Some other thoughts. Uh, Paul says, can you remind John, this is back on the uh, FDA approval, that currently the vaccine is not approved by the FDA. It's approved for emergency use. Uh, uh, and therefore, I'm fully entitled to point that out. But my main point was that the vaccine only reduces death uh, which means that it's unnecessary in the case of minors. In future, can you please concentrate on the science rather than emotional bickering and name-calling? 
Uh, Martin says, it appears with the Delta variant, achieving herd immunity is not possible. Israel says Pfizer COVID vaccine is just 39% effective as Delta spreads and vaccinated people are still able to be infected and transmit the virus. In fact, the infection rates among vaccinated and unvaccinated people appear to be similar. This makes new variants more likely to emerge. Some might even be better at transmitting among vaccinated populations. Instead, to letting run Delta and new variants running wild, like in the US or UK, the approach China, New Zealand and Australia are taking, keeping their borders closed, seems to be the right approach in order to buy more time until a truly global vaccine program kicks in. Vaccine production capacity has increased. New vaccines and treatments can be found. Uh, so Sorry, from, Hugh, I'll just add from yeah. what I've read, uh, although the listener's quite right to point out about the, this uh, Israeli uh, results, there, there are a lot of questions about that study in Israel that uh, only found a, a low uh, rate uh, okay. against the Delta. Okay. Uh, and uh, Frank says, Dear Backchat, definitely the government is on red alert mode till March 2022. That may be the underlying reason to keep social distancing, stroke quarantine restrictions in place. Most effective to stop buffs in support of the Hong Kong, Hong Kong cause from going in and milling about. It's not the science, it's the politics, it seems. Uh, pity the very articulate man running expos. That's from uh, Frank. Thank you very much indeed. Danny, thank you very much indeed. And uh, thank you also to uh, Christine, our producer, this morning. The weather forecast, sunny periods and a few showers. Isolated thunderstorms around at first with temperatures up to 32 degrees. The outlook, occasional showers over the weekend, sunny periods and a few showers early next week. There's a thunderstorm warning in effect and least until 10.30. And 29 Celsius is the latest readings with a relative humidity of 73%. Why have so many online accounts and passwords when you need only one with I Am Smart? You can access different online services using the I Am Smart platform, fill in forms automatically, and receive personalized notifications such as reminders on texts and rates. Download the I Am Smart mobile app now. You can use it after a few simple registration steps. For more details, visit imsmart.gov.hk. I Am Smart, safe and swift. 934, the news with Ben Chang. The police chief Raymond Xu has told Beijing mouthpiece Ta Kung Pao that the force will investigate whether the Civil Human Rights Front has violated the national security law. Reports say the front, the umbrella group behind, is likely to vote to disband as soon as today. A political scholar says it's not surprising the front could disband given it hasn't been able to organize its annual July 1st protest march in recent years. Last year's rally was banned due to the pandemic, and the group didn't bother to seek permission this year. Ma Nok from the Chinese University says the front has been under pressure. And the United States says it's sending nearly 3,000 troops back into Afghanistan to help evacuate staff from its embassy. The Pentagon said that they would be deployed at the interview.